This evening, in our mind-blowing Kabbalah series, we're going to be looking at a verse from the Torah that it wouldn't be exaggerating to say it completely transformed the way human beings view themselves. It must be considered one of the most dramatic, even in a way controversial statements of the Torah. And one where if we understand it, particularly through the Kabbalistic lens, it is transformative in the way we view the human being, certainly ourselves. And the, the concept that we're going to be looking at is the concept of Tselem, the image of God. And it all starts with a verse in the Torah. That verse, right at the book of, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, when God is creating the first human being, the Torah tells us that God made man in his image. In the image of God, he made him. And this statement, which is perhaps one of the more famous verses of the Torah, needs a huge amount of explanation. On its just simple level, reading it without any prior understandings or prejudices, just reading the verse, God made man in his image. It seems to be saying that the human being is a reflection of God. There is some commonality, some parallel between the human being created and God, the creator. And this verse has been identified really as being the invention of civilization, the invention of human rights, the, the beginning of the concept of an individual, the idea that a human being is not merely a, a biological speck in, in the universe, but the human being is a divine spark. Every human being is individual as God is an individual. Every individual is innately valued, just like God has an innate worth. Um, the, the idea that, that we are not just um, a, uh, an accident, we are not just another piece of creation, but we have infinite value is from the verse that God created us in his image, a divine spark. And th there, there's no going back. Once you have defined the human being as in, in God's image, then the human being can never be looked at the same again. Everything is God's creation. Everything in the world is created by God. A tree is created by God, as is a cockroach as is a speck of dust, but they're not the image of God. The image of God is only the human being. And that gives us infinite worth and huge responsibility as well, that we have divine power within us. But accepting that, we still need to understand what does that actually mean? Because the word image, image of God, seems problematic. Because does God have an image? Is, is there an image 
that we can say we are similar to God? Is there a description of God that we can have, that we can present, that we can give a, a definition to therefore say that we're similar? You can't compare two things without a definition. You can't say that you are in the image of that if that doesn't have a definition. The two things must have some commonality that you can describe. And saying that about God is problematic because God is indescribable. God having an image seems to be the antithesis of everything the Torah teaches us, that God has no image. Those who created images of God, that's what is idolatry. Anytime you make a definition, you uh, have a, a finite view of divine, you've got something else. That's not God. And yet here, we're being told that, that God created us in his image, implying that there is an image there. There is some picture that we should be able to have of God, which sounds quite uh, idolatrous and the antithesis of our belief. So we're gonna have to explore what indeed this means. So the first point of call will be looking at Maimonides' words. The great philosopher Rambam Maimonides from the 1100s, he set forth 13 principles of absolute faith. The third principle of faith is we believe that, his, that this oneness, the oneness of God, is neither a body nor a bodily force, nor is he subject to any bodily characteristics, movement, rest, or dwelling, be they inherent or by chance. He doesn't have temporary bodily functions or inherent by definition, he doesn't have them. It doesn't, it doesn't happen to God that he has, has any bodily form or, or bodily experience. As the prophet Isaiah said, who is comparable to the almighty? For if he had a body, he could be compared to other bodies. But who is comparable? No one's comparable to the almighty. You can't make any comparison. There's no, there's no, there's no parallel you can make to God. All the corporeal terms used in the scriptures to describe him, such as walking, standing, sitting, speaking, they're metaphorical. That's, that's just metaphor. It's, it's, it's a parable. As the sages have said, the Torah speaks in the language of man. The Torah uses human language to understand that God walks and talks. That's all metaphorical. But God does not have a body, no experience of a body. And therefore, the, uh, the descriptions of a body cannot be applied to him. Now, if you look carefully at these words of Maimonides, he seems to completely negate the idea of the image of God. God has no body, no form, and he's not comparable to anything. You can't compare him to anything. How can we be in his image if he has no comparison? An image of something is a comparison, surely. And yet, the absolute principle of faith is that God has no body. So how can we reconcile this idea with a clear verse in the Torah that God created us in his image? What is this image? Image of what? So if we look through some of the great philosophical thinkers of Judaism, including Maimonides, several of them offered different explanations as to what this image of God really means. Maimonides himself said that the human being in being in God's image means that we have intelligence. We have awareness. 
no animal has intelligence like a human does. Of course, animals do have brains. They have intelligence. They, have, they, they can have very sharp intelligence. They can have great abilities, great uh, assessment abilities. They can judge distances, sometimes greater than a human being. But intelligence meaning the ability to come up with a new idea, to create a new concept, to invent, to solve a problem, to look at things in a, in a new and different way, no animal has that. Animals have intelligence that serves their instinct. The human being has an intelligence that's a self-awareness. We, we know ourselves. We can imagine a future. We can, we can remember a past. We can come up with, with new angles on things. That's the intelligence that Maimonides says is in God's image. That, that's a divine power to have such imagination to have that, the, the ability to, to, to conjure ideas and concepts, that's, that's God's image. That's how we're created in God's image. That's how Maimonides explained it. The Maral of Prague, who was in the 1500s in Prague, a, a great and holy, and holy leader and, and teacher, he said that what makes man in God's image is that we have free choice, that the human being chooses our path. We are not pre-programmed. We're not forced to follow our instincts. We can choose the path that we want. Unlike any animal, an animal is an instinctive being. They cannot go against their instincts. They, they can't do other than what they were programmed to do. And they may do that better than we do. They, they can be stronger than us. They can be faster than us, but it's instinctive. Even when an animal saves another animal's life, or risks its own life to protect its young. That's all instinct. A human being can be instinctive, but we also can uh, go beyond our instincts. We have free choice to act as we please. And this, the Maharal says, is God's image. That's something that only God is truly free and has free choice. He gave us his image, his ability to be free. So, our free choice is, is, is what we, the way we reflect God's image. The Ibn Ezra, one of the Spanish uh, great commentaries from the 1200s or so, he said that the image of God is that we have an eternal soul, that the, the human soul has a sense of, in, of eternity about it. It lives on beyond this lifetime. We live a short amount of time in a physical body, in this physical world. That's one part of our journey. But the soul lives on and continues in the next world. And the soul is eternal. The soul never dies. And so while we die in this world, that's a physical death of our body. But the soul continues and, and lives on. And that is the image of God that we have. The idea that we, are, we have a, a, a touch of infinity, a, a, the power of eternity. We, we live on beyond this, this world. That is the image of God in the human being. these different angles, each one tried to uh, decorporealize, if that is a word, the idea of the image of God, that it's not that our body, our physical body is in God's image. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a physical property of us because God is not physical. He has no body, as we saw from Maimonides earlier, the third principle of faith, God has no body. God has no form, no shape. So it's not that our body is in God's image. It's that there's an aspect of us that is in, in the divine image, our intelligence, our free choice, the eternity of our soul. 
the, this uh, an aspect of our being that reflects a divine reality. There's, a, there's an expression of the, of the divine is God's image. That's how all these commentaries try to explain it. But if you think about it, these explanations, as profound as they are, they don't really get us out of the problem. Because anything we say, whether it's a physical aspect of the human existence, or a more spiritual aspect, like intelligence, free choice, or, or the soul, either way, it's some type of description. You're giving us some type of definition. How can that be in God's image? How can God have an image, even a non-corporeal image, even a non-physical image? Any description is still metaphor. What Maimonides said about God when God speaks or God walks or he sits down, all these things are metaphorical. Of course, he doesn't have a body to sit down. When it says God's eyes look down upon us, he doesn't have eyes, it's metaphorical. Well, when we say God's intelligence, it's also metaphorical or God's free choice, or God's eternity even. All of these words are words that are created. They're concepts that are a part of this physical world. And so anything we say is not a real accurate description of God. So how have we moved on by saying that the image of God is not the physical body, it's our intelligence, our free choice, or our internal soul? How have we moved? We've, we're still using a metaphorical description of God, which is not really him in the first place. He has no description. He's not bound even to say that God is eternal. Even that is a borrowed term. Eternal is a, is a time concept. Time is a creation. Time didn't exist before time. Before time, there was no time. Sometimes we feel like there's no time now. But before, before time, there was definitely no time. It was created at a certain point. Everything is created, everything in the, in the world, every, every word we use, every terminology that there is, is a created concept that is a part of the world that wasn't before, came from nothing. So to say God is intelligent? No, he created intelligence. So how can you say that our intelligence is what makes us in God's image? It doesn't, it doesn't actually change anything. You could, just like saying our body is is created our intelligence is created so if you can't say that our body is in god's image you can't say our intelligence is in god's image because both were equally created beings and god is the creator who's beyond all those definitions so the philosophical answers don't really fully cut it we're going to have to go into kabbalah to answer this question there are many questions like this that until you go into the mystical soul of the Torah, you're not going to get a fully satisfying answer because philosophy can take you only as far as the mind can take you. But to go into the realm of the divine, which is beyond the mind, for that you need Kabbalah. And so we're going to look at the one of the earliest Kabbalistic texts, and that is from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet, a prophet of Israel in, in the times of the first temple. And Ezekiel had a vision. 
he had a vision famously known as the Merkava, a vision of the divine chariot. In his prophecy that he experienced, he had a vision of God's chariot, of God's throne. And he describes it in the book of Ezekiel. You can have a look in chapter two. It's a part of the Tanakh, part of the Hebrew Bible, where Ezekiel says, he describes the chariot in, in detail. And amongst the description, he says that on the, on the image of the throne was like the image of a vision of a man up above. That, that what, I, what I saw, what, what he saw when he was seeing the throne of God, it was an image of a throne. And on the throne was like the image of a vision of a man up above. He doesn't say there was a man on the throne. He doesn't even say there was a throne. There was an image of a throne. It was a vision, an image, a sense of a throne. And on the, on the throne, the image of the throne, was an image of a vision of a man. Not even an image of a vision of a man, like the image of a vision of a man. His words are very exact. He's talking about a prophecy. A prophecy, if anyone's had one, would know, is a, a vision where the soul has an experience, has, has, a, has a higher experience. He's not looking at something with his eyes. He's looking at it with the eyes of his soul, with his mental eyes. And he saw a vision of, of God's chariot. And on the chariot was a man. But like the image of a vision of a man. But with all the likes and all the images and all the, all the, the, the careful wording that Ezekiel said. But the bottom line is what he saw was like the image of a man. That was the, the metaphor was like a man. And so this vision that Ezekiel had is the basis of a huge amount of Kabbalistic literature of exactly what this man on the throne means. And if we understand what the man on the throne of Ezekiel's vision is, we will understand how we are in God's image. Because Ezekiel, the prophet, saw the likeness of an image of a vision of a man. And so the Kabbalists understood that that likeness of the image is the image of God that we are created in. So what is Ezekiel's vision? This is a very, very big subject in, in Kabbalistic writings. We're going to get, just get a taste of it. We're going to look at Tikkun Zohar, a section of the Zohar. These are teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And this section, Tikkun Zohar, a section of teachings that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the second century rabbi from northern Israel. These are teachings he received directly from Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Navi. Elijah the great prophet from biblical times who never died. He went up to heaven in a, in a chariot of fire, alive, and he comes back down. Till today, he's still around. And great and very holy people some of the great Kabbalists received teachings and lessons from Elijah the prophet and shared them. Here we are going to now be privy to one of the teachings of Elijah the prophet that was taught to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And this one is so popular, it's actually found in many prayer books, in many Sidurim. Many people recite this section on Fridays before Shabbos comes in. Some people say it every morning before prayers. It's an extremely powerful thing. It's known as Patach Eliyahu. 
So the prophet Elijah, blessed memory, opened and said the following. Eternal, hidden master of the worlds. You are he whose unity is infinite and absolute and therefore indivisible. You are he transcendent beyond all that is above and concealed behind all that is concealed. No thought whatsoever can grasp you. So by introduction, we're, we're addressing God here, hidden master of the worlds, and we're saying your unity is absolute. There is one God. One God doesn't just mean there's one God and not many gods. It means that you're an absolute oneness. You're not even divisible. There's not parts of God. God is not divisible into compartments, into sections, into aspects, into attributes. God is completely one. Absolute oneness. When we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the most central prayer of Judaism. What we're saying is not just that there's one God and not many gods. That's true. We're saying he is oneness, absolute oneness, indivisible. And that's what Eliyahu is, is here saying. You transcend all that is above and concealed behind all that is concealed. Meaning, doesn't matter how high we may perceive, God is above that and beyond it. We can never reach God. We can never, we can never find him and say, okay, that's it. We got it. However high we go, he's infinitely higher. He transcends all that is above. So there are heavenly realms, there are higher realms. But whatever you perceive, you haven't got there. He's beyond. Concealed behind all that is concealed, meaning that God is so concealed, so not apparent, not, not able to be experienced, that even when you think that you know where he's concealed, he's concealed from that. Even what you think you don't know, you don't even know. He's infinitely higher than that as well. Concealed behind all that is concealed. So Elijah is here introducing this teaching by saying, God is absolute oneness, not divisible, not dividable, not compartmentalized. He's completely beyond everything and concealed from everything. But having said that, now, now we've, we've established that fact. Let's go further. Continues Elijah in this teaching from the Tikkunai Zohar. But you are he who brought forth 10 rectifications. We call them the 10 sefirot of Atzilut, with which to regulate hidden worlds that are not revealed, as well as worlds that are revealed. Indeed, it is through these that you are hidden from human beings. You are he who binds them and unifies them. It is from these garments that the souls of human beings originate. Having said that God is completely one, totally unified but god brought forth 10 sefirot which means 10 lights 10 illuminations 10 expressions in with which to regulate to interact with the world the hidden as well as the revealed the spiritual as well as the physical and indeed these sfirot, these illuminations, are expressions of light through which God can conceal himself. God being infinite and beyond, he allows himself to interact with the world through expressing ten sfirot, 
these, these 10 lights, these 10, 10 luminescences. God unifies them, binds them together. He's the one light behind them. And from these come the souls of human beings. This is where we come from. So now Elijah, he has introduced a second layer of God's presence. There's God's self, who is completely beyond any description, any, any definition, and any division. And then there is a created layer that God brought forth that has a number, 10. There are 10 lights, 10 expressions of, of light, 10 faculties. And it's through these that God regulates, interacts, and, uh, and, and controls the worlds through these 10 faculties. But he's the united force behind them, hiding behind them. And our souls come from there. And he continues. They are called a body relative to the clothes that cover over them. These 10 spirit are called a body. They are arranged as follows. The 10 spirit are chesed, loving kindness, is the right arm. Guvura, which is restraint, is the left arm. And tiferet, harmony, is the torso. Netzach, dominance, and hod, which is submission, are the two legs. And yesod, foundation, is the body's extremity, the sign of the holy covenant, the Brit. Malchut, kingship, is the mouth. Chachma, wisdom, is the brain, the seed of thought. And Bina, understanding, is the heart. The heart's ability to discern. Keter, Elion, the supernal crown, is the crown of royalty, the leather box of the tefillin. And you see the, the diagram over there where Elijah has identified the different 10 lights, the 10 expressions of the divine to different parts of the body. Now, it would take um, years for us to unwrap every line here and its meaning. The meaning of each one of these 10 attributes, what those words actually mean how they interact with each other, how they correspond to the different parts of the body. But for the purposes of this evening, let's just get a, a sense of what Elijah, the prophet, is teaching us here. That God has taken on a form. He's taken on faculties, just descriptive words, 10. There's only 10 of them. Each one has a, a particular attribute, a particular flavor. And they correspond to like a body with different sides, left and right and middle. Intellectual faculties, emotional faculties, practical faculties. There, there's like a, a certain shape taking form here. And this, the Kabbalists say, this is what Ezekiel the prophet saw, the image on the, on the throne of a man was this. He, it, it's not physical. He didn't see a physical person because he wasn't looking at a physical throne. It was a prophecy. 
But the image was these different energies that God takes on. It's not, not God's self. God's self is indescribable. But the different images that he took on as this description. And, and this, this, is, this is wondrous. H how are we going from the singularity, the oneness of God to 10? How are, we, how are we going from the infinity of God to a finite description? How are we going from absolute indivisible oneness to different sides and expressions? And, and what's the point of this? What's the idea behind it? So really in Elijah's teachings, it's, it's all explained. But we need, to, we need to unpack a little bit to understand his words. So we'll look at some other Kabbalists and the way they explained it a bit, a bit further. This is the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, was, was the grandson of the author of the Tanya. He lived in the 1800s. And he explained it like this. We cannot describe God as having any form. So when we talk about 10 Sfirot, God has no form. But the intent is that God enclosed in a form with 10 faculties in order to interact with people who have souls made up of 10 faculties. For the giver needs to be in the same format as the receiver. So when God wants to give us divine flow, he enclothes in the likeness of a man. It's not that God has a description, but we human beings do have a description. We are finite beings. We, in fact, have the right and the left, chesed and gvura, kindness and strictness. We have intellectual faculties and emotional faculties. This is a description of us, of the human being. This is our finiteness. God has none of those descriptions. However, because he wants to interact with us, because he wants to give to us, so the giver has to have a, the same format, has to be able to relate to the receiver. And so God enclothes, he chooses to give himself these descriptions, not that his self takes on those descriptions. It's a, a garment that he wears. It's an outfit that he puts on in order to be able to interact with us. So what the Sebastian here is describing in explaining what Eliyahu taught in the Zohar is the awesome love that God has for us, that he puts his infinity aside and he enters into a, a finite persona that's not him. But that's all to be able to relate to us, to give to us. This is, this is really illustrated by a delightful story that, that happened to the Tzemach Tzedek's grandfather, possibly with the Tzemach Tzedek himself. The, the Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, was an awesome scholar and a, and a great mystic. The book of Tanya is, is the, the great classic of Jewish mystical thought. And he authored that as well as many other works. He was the, the, an ultimate uh, scholar and, and wise man, and also a very practical person. It once happened that one of his students was having an issue, a parenting issue, having an issue with, it, with, with uh, directing his children. And so he wanted to come to Rabbi Shnei Zalman for some advice. 
advice on parenting, how to, how to parent better my, my children. So he approached Rabbi Schneir Zalman's uh, home and he saw through the window that Rabbi Schneir Zalman was playing with one of his grandchildren. I don't know if it was the Tzemach Tzedek or another grandchild, but one of, the Tzemach, one, of, one of the grandchildren, he was playing. How was he playing? Rabbi Schneir Zalman was on all fours, on his hands and knees, with his grandchild on his back. And the grandchild was pretending that his grandfather was a donkey. And Rabbi Schneir Zalman was acting the donkey. And they were playing in, in, in that way. The student saw his Rebbe, the holy Rabbi Shneir Zalman, the great, the great scholar in, in playing with his grandchild and thought this is not a good time to interrupt. It's also not so dignified for a student to come in and while the, the, the grandfather is with his grandchild, he's not, he's, he's, he's not being his, the Rebbe now, he's being a grandfather, he's playing with his grandchild but he's acting like a donkey. That's not, it's not the time for me to come in. So, so he went away and he came back a bit later. And then the, the game was over at that time and he was welcomed in and he, and he asked this question about this issue that he had with relating to his children, directing them as a, as a parent. Rabbi Schneer Zalman's answer was, it's a shame you weren't here a short while ago when I was playing with my grandson. You would have seen how you need to get down to the other person's level in order to be able to connect with them. I don't know if what he meant was that he knew that he'd seen this. And so when he said, it's a shame you weren't here, he was saying it ironically. But either way, what he was saying was, if you would have seen how I was interacting with my grandson, you would have seen the answer to your question. You're coming as a parent and you have an issue with your child. Your kids aren't not, are not listening to you. They're not, they're not behaving the way you want them to behave. They're not, they're not following you as a parent. They're not respecting you. Well, the issue is that you're not relating to them. And so if they can't relate to you, they can't listen to you. You're not in their world and they're not in your world. You can't bark orders as a, as a parent because you have to speak their language. You can't just from a distance expect the children to just respect you and honor you and listen to you there has to be a connection there and the connection is only formed when you as a parent can go down to them and they can feel that they're seeing eye to eye with you it doesn't mean that you have to lose your status of authority as a parent but it means they have to feel that you're there for them that that you're you listening to them you're understanding and appreciating them Otherwise, they can't receive from you. You're in your world and they're in their world. And so Rabbi Schneer Zalman's parenting advice here was a, a, a rule that can be applied throughout parenting and really throughout all relationships. To relate, you have to be on the level. There has to be a sense of rapport, of, of interaction. And for that, sometimes you have to go down and play their game. In this example, Rabbi Schneir Zalman was being the donkey for his grandson. And he was willing to do that. He wasn't the great scholar at that moment. He was the grandfather being, being the donkey for my grandson. I'll do that. No problem, because that's what he wants. Now I'm in his world. Now he relates to me. Then I could be the grandfather who has authority 
who lays down rules, who sometimes has to discipline. But we're connected. We're one that there's, there's a loving relationship because you're in my world, says the grandson. Without that, the, without the connection, so your discipline is, is falling on deaf ears. You're not even talking to me. Who are you anyway? And so this was Rabbi Shnei Zalman's advice to, to this particular parent and to all parents and to all people in all relationships. And this lesson is actually what the Tzemach Tzedek was saying is God's action when he took on the 10 Sfirot. He took on a persona, a shape. It's not that God has any shape, God forbid. But he wants to relate to us and we do have a shape. We're people, we're human beings. So God took on attributes as it were. It's not him, but he wants to relate to us human beings. We are finite. So therefore we need an expression that is finite. We can't relate to infinity. We can't relate to God as he is on, on his own, his self that has no definition. So for us to, to have, a, have a, a connection with God, he lowers himself to play our game, as it were. And so God gets angry and he gets happy. He gives us commandments that, that when we do good, it gives him nachas and pleasure. And if we do bad, he withdraws and gets upset. He responds to our actions. Now, if you think about it, God is infinite. Does any of this matter to him? Well, yes, because he wants the connection. If he wants the connection with us, so then it matters to him. He makes it matter to him. He takes on that persona that, that matters because, because he loves us. So when, when a parent is playing with, with a child, you've got to get into that game. You've got to be upset if you lose and excited if you win. can't not matter to you. Because if it doesn't matter to you, then the kid realizes you're not playing with me. You're not interested in this. You have to be in the kid's world, interested in it, bothered by it, excited by it. That's what God did. He took on a, a persona that's not him for us in order to relate to us. Which is an awesome contemplation to think God's infinite self became finite just because he wants to be with us. Imagine that grandchild one day re reflected on my grandfather, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, the great scholar, let me ride on his back like he was a donkey because he wanted to connect with me. What a, what a beautiful thing. How moving. And how much more God, who's not human being, Rabbi Shneir Zalman's a human just like his, his, his grandson, God in his infinite self connects to us in our finite puny selves. That's an awesome thought, a humbling thought. So with this, we can understand that when Ezekiel saw the figure of a man, God forbid there's no shape there. God does not have a body. But what he saw was the 10 spirit, the persona that God takes on in order to interact with man. And therefore, when it says that God made man in his image, what does it mean? It means that we are a reflection of that man on the throne, that divine persona 
because God wants to relate to us. But if you think about that a little bit, you end up with a bit of a conundrum, a bit of a riddle. Because if indeed we're saying that we're made in God's image, but God has no form, but he took on a form in order to interact with us, it becomes circular. <laughs> let, you could start this circle anywhere you want, but let, let's start it here at the top. God has no image or form or body. However, man has 10 attributes of the soul reflected in the shape of our body. We have a right side and a left side. We have kindness and strictness and intellect and emotion. We, we are finite with, with features. God has no image, no body, no form, but we do. We have a body, and that is a reflection of the form of our soul. Therefore, because we have a body, so God enclosed himself in 10 attributes to interact with man because we have a physical shape as well as an emotional and, and spiritual shape. So God enclosed himself in 10 attributes in order to interact with us. Thus, God's image is made of 10 attributes. What's God's image? The image he took on in order to interact with us. And God made man in his image. So, so we're in his image, the 10 attributes. But God has no image. <laughs> God has no form. It's just, we have a form. You can go around in circles here, but... This, it doesn't make sense in the end. Where does it begin? Where does this image begin? It, is it God's image or is it our image? It, it sounds like God, God the, the verse should have said, God made himself in our image. That, that God created for himself an image of man. Because man has an image. We have 10 attributes. We have a personality. We have a finite description. God's infinite. Infinity and, and finiteness can't relate. So God took on a persona to relate to us. So that means he made himself in our image, not we're in his image. It's our image that came first that he copied in order to interact with us. But yet it's God made man in his image. What, what does this mean? So to answer this, to answer this question, we need to go a little bit deeper. There's a teaching of the Rebbe Marash. The Rebbe Marash, Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch, he was the son of the Tzemach Tzedek. Tzemach Tzedek had many sons, I think eight, and he was the youngest. The Rabbi Shmuel was the youngest, and also he was the, the next in line to lead the Chabad movement and his teachings are extremely deep, usually expanding on the teachings of his father, the Tzemach Tzedek. The Rebbe Marash said the following words, in truth, when speaking of the essence of God's light, infinite light, it is impossible to describe it as being in the image of a man. For man is divided into three columns, Chesed on the right, Gvur on the left, Tiferet, the torso, etc. But the infinite light is beyond these attributes. As we've said, this, this we saw also from Patech from Eliyahu's teaching in Tukun Ezar, that God's infinite self, you can't describe as being in the image of man. 
The human being is, is defined by different attributes. God is not defined by anything. He's beyond all attributes. That, that, that's we've seen before, that, that we understand. So then what is the image of God? The fact that we refer to God having the image of man is only when he encloses himself in attributes for the sake of our souls. Yeah, we saw that from the Tzemach He encloses himself in these attributes for the sake of our souls. Well, listen to this. This is the meaning of the teaching. Our souls came up in his original thought. This itself is the image of man that appeared on the throne. What does he mean? Our souls came up in his original thought. The way we understood it until now was that God created a world. And in this world were finite beings, human beings. God wanted a relationship with us. And knowing that he is infinite and we are finite, well, he can't relate to us. We can't relate to him. Infinity and finiteness can't, can't come together. So he took on a persona in order to relate to us. Similar to the metaphor we said, the, the grandfather playing with a grandchild. That the grandfather is a scholar. He's an intellectual person. He's a, he's a spiritual person and he's mature. He doesn't act like a donkey. But because he wants to relate to his grandchild, so he takes on the donkey persona. He plays as a donkey on the floor because he wants to play with the grandchild. That's how we understood it until now. The Rebbe Marashi switches it around and says, no. The original desire of creating the entire universe was for the sake of this relationship. It wasn't that God created a world, put us in it, and then said, I'd love to relate to you. I'd love to interact with you, but I can't because I'm infinite and you're finite. So you're not going to really relate to me. So I'll take on a persona. That was not an afterthought. That was the original thought. The whole point of creation, God's entire intent in making this entire universe was to have a relationship with you and me. That's, that's what he wanted in the first place. God is in his infinite self, wanted to connect with a finite self, which is us. That's why he created everything. That's the purpose of everything. The purpose of this world is for God's infinity to be expressed together with a finite being, that we should partner with him to together make a world of goodness, of holiness. God's infinite. He can do anything. But for finiteness to join with him, to choose him, to connect with him, that's something new. And that's why he created the world. That was his original thought. What inspired God, as it were, to create, what pushed him, his impetus, the reason he created was because he wants a connection with us, with finite beings. And so therefore, the, the original thought of creation was the human being. The puny, finite, little human being. That was the original thought of creation. That's what came up first. 
And then God said, well, if I want a finite being, I need a finite world. And if I want a finite world, so I, I need to create spiritual realms and a whole evolution of worlds, all to come down to this physical world. And this physical world, the entire universe, the entire expanse of the universe is all the arena in which a human being, a finite being can live because that, that finite being needs air and sun and moon and the, the, the entire ecosystem. This is all the arena for there to be a human being, a finite being with free choice who can choose to connect with me. That was his original thought. That's what inspired him to create in the first place. And that thought was so deep within the divine that yearning, the desire to connect with us was so profound in God that it actually created an image of man within God. Long before we appeared physically, long before we were actually created, the image of us, the inspiration, the drive to connect with us was there in God. God thought of us at the very beginning. And this is the image of man that appeared on the throne for Ezekiel. Let's try and bring this down a little bit. Because what the Rebbe Marash here is saying is world-changing. There's the metaphor of the grandfather playing with his grandchild. But in that case, the grandchild already exists. The grandfather is already a grandfather. Just to have a relationship, he needs to go down into his world. Here we're going a step deeper and saying that God isn't just looking for a relationship with us after he's created us. He saw us before we existed. And that was his dream. His dream was to connect to us. But he knew that for him to connect to us, he has to become a creator. God is not innately a creator. God is God. No description. He just is. Even is is a word that we borrow to describe. But he just, God. No is, no doing, no creator, nothing. He just is. And not even is. To be a creator, to be a king, to be a father, all, all these are terms. These are personas that he has to take on. And so he did that because he wanted us. He wanted a connection with us. It's not after we exist that he takes on this persona. It's before anything exists. God said, I take on to be a relatable being, to be lovable, because I love you even before you exist. I love you and I want to be connected with you. So much so that the vision of you is embedded in me. It becomes a part of me. God took on this image 
in order to be able to connect with us. And we were created in that image. Going back to the story with Rabbi Schneer Zalman and his grandson, and the lesson he taught the, the, the father who came for some advice on parenting. What Rabbi Schneer Zalman was really saying on a deeper level was if you want to be able to relate to anybody outside of yourself, if you want any type of relationship, you have to first become a relationships being. The human being on our own, we're not God, but we also have a certain aloneness at our core, like God did before he created the world. There's just me and I'm an island. But I seek relationship. I want to be able to connect. How do I connect? I first have to become a relationships being. I have to become a being that can connect. And to do that, I have to create within myself a relatability, the ability to hear, to listen, to connect, to empathize. The, the room to have another, somebody else in my life. That's something that a step that I have to make first before I can invite somebody else into my life. Because if I don't, when I do meet somebody else, I don't really meet them and they don't really meet me. Because I'm an island. I'm a self-contained entity. Yes, of course, there are other people around. I'm aware of that. But they are just the background of my life. I just see them in my image. It's only if I can find within myself the real desire to connect to another and therefore open myself to the otherness of the other, only then can I actually have a relationship. For example, often when um, somebody's trying to help somebody find their soulmate, you want to introduce a friend, you want to introduce somebody to, to someone. So the first question you ask is, so what are you looking for? What are you looking for in a partner? And often people will write long lists, detailed lists of what they're looking for. Well, is that the right way to go? Is it helpful to have that long list of what you're looking for? Or should you better write a long list of what you have to offer? What are you bringing to a relationship? What part of you is there to relate to another? If you sit back and say, well, I'm me, and here's the list of what I want to add to me. This is the person, this is the description of the person that I want to come along with my journey. 
but but they're a person. They they have a life. They they have an, an existence. It's not it's not your life and somebody else's is just tagging along. What openness do you have to them? What do you have to offer them? Instead of thinking what I'm looking for, how should we know what we're looking for until we find it? We have no clue what we're looking for. All I know is I want a relationship with somebody who can relate to me and I want to be able to relate to them. So I have to find within myself the ability of relating. As long as I'm a loner, I'm stuck in myself. Or another example, even more stark, is the parenting example. If I'm a parent trying to parent my child, I first have to child my parent. I, I first have to find in me, a, a parent, the child, the understanding of a child. I have to relate to where they're coming from. I can't just tell them what to do. I'm, a, I'm an adult. How's my adult perspective going to speak to a child? I have to understand where they're coming from, why they're behaving the way they are. I was a child once. I remember that. It's not so long ago. And by me finding the child within me and connecting with the child on their level, now, now we're connected. Now I can go back to my parent persona and direct, inspire, discipline. But if I haven't connected, if the child doesn't see me in their world, why should they listen to me? And this is in every relationship, every single interaction we have. If I'm in my universe and trying to reach out into your universe, if I'm doing that through just being me and saying what I want and telling you what I think, why should you listen? Why should, why should, why should there be any connection? It's only once there, there is some, some interaction, once there's some level where you see that I appreciate your world, that I can enter into your space, I can hear where you are and what you're, what you're saying. Once there's a connection, there's a rapport, then we can have a relationship. I believe that's what Rabbi Shnei Zalman was saying to this parent, you should have seen me before. If you would have come earlier, you would have seen me acting like a donkey for my grandchild. And that's all you needed to know, to know how to be a good parent, to act like a donkey, to, to enter into the child's world, to, to put yourself in, into their world. And, and then the connection means they'll, they'll want to listen to you. They'll want to hear what you have to say. And this Rabbi Shneur Zalman learned from God himself that God created us in his image. What does that mean? That the human image didn't start with a human being. It started with God. God said, 
I want a relationship. I want to connect to a finite being, not myself. A relationship is not with myself. A relationship is with somebody who is outside of myself, a separate being. God, I'm infinite. I want to connect to a finite being, a being that has free choice on their own, can choose me or not choose me. Someone who's outside of myself. But for me to do that, I have to be relatable. I have to be lovable. And so his love for us, before we even existed, caused him to take on a persona, which is what's called the image of man. That's the original man. Known in Kabbalah as Adam Elion, the, the supernal man, or Adam Kadmon, the original man. And then God created us in that image, that, that finite image. So we can have actual relationship. So if, if God had the humility to relate to us, we can have the humility to relate to another human being, to enter their world and really connect with them. Okay. Well, I welcome questions now. I'm going to look at the chat and answer any questions that came up. Um, and people can uh, add to the chat or, um, or unmute as well and ask questions. So a question here. We, we mentioned the Torah speaks in the language of men. Um, so what does that mean? The Torah speaks in the language of men. That the phraseology that the Torah uses is human phraseology. It's, 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 what, it's ways that we can relate. So by saying God is happy or God is watching, these are borrowed terms. We don't have any other term to use. That's human interaction. It's called anthropomorphism, using human terms to describe God. But what we can see from the, the teaching we learned is anthropomorphism is actually the other way around of what we think. We thought, and we always thought that we're using human terms to describe God because we have no other terms. So God doesn't have eyes that look. We have eyes that look. But we have no other term to describe God's watching over us he's inter he's observing us we don't have any other terms we use human terms but they're borrowed terms we have eyes that look god doesn't but it's a borrowed term from what we said it's actually the other way around god is the real adam god is the real man he has the eyes our eyes are in his image we have the physical emanation the physical ex expression of the divine eyes that are looking at us. So the borrowed term is our eyes, not, not God's eyes. Another question here, why want a relationship? Why want a relationship? So you can't really ask why someone wants something. That's what I want. This, this, is, this is what I want. There's no explanation for wanting. It's a, it's a desire. Like 
why do we want to survive? Why do we have this, this, this desire to survive? There's no why, it's just, that, that's me. So we can't really ask why God wants something. It's just what he wants. I mean, you could rationalize on some level and say, what was God missing? If you're an infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing being, what are you missing? What, what don't you have? What do you lack? Nothing, surely nothing. How could an infinite, all-powerful being be lacking anything? The only thing we could say he's lacking is the experience of not being all-powerful, not being infinite and all-knowing. You can't say that that's a lack, that he's missing something, but you can say that he didn't have it. And he decided that's what he wants. He wants to experience finiteness. But if you're infinite, how do you experience finiteness? In a relationship with a finite being. He created us. We are not separate from God. We are God's finiteness. We are, we are the, the, the expression of God's finiteness. That's who we are. All creation is, is a, an illusion of separation between God's infinity and God's finiteness. We are God's finiteness and we feel separate from his infinity. We're not really, we just feel we are. And, but that feeling gives us an autonomy to allow us to have a relationship with God that our finite self should find God. Why do you want all this? No idea. Okay, another question here. How can we be so convinced that God loves us as much as you describe when there have been so many periods in our history of intense suffering? It's a big and important question and very difficult question. The question of suffering is, it's, it's actually really the only question. Everything else can be pretty, pretty well explained. Existence of suffering, we cannot explain. Why, why did God create a world where there is so much suffering? Why couldn't he do it some other way? If he's all-powerful, surely he could create a world where there's no suffering. There's no pain. Whatever is gained by suffering, and we have many things we could say are gained by suffering. We all know from our own experience that our suffering has sometimes led to our greatest insights, our deepest compassion has come out of suffering. Many of us can say that we've become much better people as a result of our suffering. Had we not gone through some of the difficult times in our lives, we may not be quite as nice as we are today. And we all know from our personal experience that sometimes uh, suffering does bring out the best. We could say all that. But none of that can really justify suffering because surely God could have given us a different way of reaching those insights without suffering. He could have done it some other way. He, he's all powerful. So, so we can't really explain suffering. But the existence of suffering is not a contradiction to God's love for us. And, and for that, we have to go back to the metaphor of the parent and the child. 
good parents, loving, kind, good parents cause their children suffering. I don't mean abusive parents. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about good, kind parents cause their kids suffering. Sometimes intentionally. And the child is furious and can't understand why, why are you doing this? This is so unfair. Why are you so mean? But a parent will, will sometimes cause suffering out of love. Knowing that, no, I, I have to say no to you now. I have to take this toy away from you now. I have to take this knife away from you now. You can't play with it. I have to send you to your room now. I'm not, I can't let you eat that now. For a child, this is suffering. And the child will never understand as a child, will never understand why the parent is doing that. And will feel a sense of hatred towards the parent. At that moment. But when they grow up, they will appreciate that that suffering and that punishment and that harshness was actually not suffering and punishment harsh. It was love. It's very hard to say that about human suffering and God. It's very hard to say when we, when we observe the pain of innocent people suffering a horrible illness. It's very hard to say, well, that's just God being a, a disciplinarian. And we're not saying that it's a punishment. Just like a parent is not punishing the child by taking something away. It's not the child did something wrong. It's protecting and teaching the child. We're not saying that, that suffering is a punishment. All The only thing we're saying, the com comparison that, that, that I'm making here is the fact that a child doesn't understand what the parent is doing is not surprising. Because how, how could a child understand the parent? And that's two human beings. How much more us understanding God? How could we possibly understand God's infinite ways? But it doesn't mean that it's coming from anything other than love. We just don't understand that now. And we have to humbly admit that we don't understand. Okay. If there are no other questions, we'll leave it for this evening. And one other question here. I think you answered this when you said that one thing that may have been lacking was his lack of power. Now, the, 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 the thing that God was lacking was finiteness, being finite. And that's what we, we provide. So, so another question here. If God created the illusion of being finite and we are created in his image, we are being told that our finite nature is an illusion and that we are playing out being clothed in attributes that are finite. No, it's not that our finiteness is, a, is an illusion. Our separateness is an illusion. We feel that we're separate from God, that we're independent, that there's, there's me. God, there is God, but he's up there somewhere, and I'm down here as a separate being. That is an illusion. The truth is it's all God. You, me, and everything, it's all God. 
So it's not that we don't exist. We do exist. We are not an illusion. We're real. We're very real. So real that we're actually an expression of God, the ultimate realness. The only thing that's an illusion is that we're separate from him. That, that's that's what, what is an illusion. And so the finiteness is, is true. It's divine finiteness. It's a divine power to be finite. And as long as I maintain that illusion that I'm separate from God, I exist as a separate entity. If I see beyond that illusion, I become dissolved in the divine. And so I lose my myself, my, my identity, which is not necessarily bad, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose now is to maintain our, our separateness and by choice connect, take our finiteness and connect to God. Meaning on a practical term, when, when, when I, I live my life, I make choice. We said before, we have free choice. We do, we have free choice. I choose how I live my life. I could live my life in a completely selfish way, use all the gifts that I'm given to just enjoy myself and seek more pleasure and, and not care about anything higher or beyond myself. I can choose to do that. Or I can choose to use the gifts that I've been given, the life I've been given to share, to give, to bring light to others, to do good, to, to make the world a holier and better place. By doing that, I have chosen to bring God into the world, to connect God and have a relationship with him by fulfilling his will. And doing that is taking my finiteness and connecting to the infinite through my own free choice. But it only works as long, I only have free choice as long as I feel separate from God. If I would, if I would transcend that barrier, I would lose my free choice and lose my, my separateness. And that's something that uh, will happen at the end of times. When Mashiach comes, once the world has fulfilled its purpose, then we can, we can take off the mask and we can all be one with God. In the meantime, our separateness is, is our gift. So is our desire to connect to God, God's desire to connect to himself, his infinity drawn to divine finiteness, like two ends of a magnet. In a way, yeah, it is. It is, it is, it is two sides of, of God's self. But the, the, the paradox is that he's given us control over one side. Like he's, he's really given us free choice. Um, it's not that he can't control. He could control us if he wanted. He chose to give us the controls. And that is very vulnerable. We could stuff it all up. Human beings could, could, could ruin the whole, the whole uh, plan. Of course, ultimately, God's plan will, will happen. All we can do is delay it or slow it down. But, but we do have real free choice. And, and so while we are an aspect of God, we're not puppets. We're, we're finite beings that have been given the choice. So that's a big responsibility and an amazing gift. All right. We'll leave it there. Fantastic questions and, and great discussion. And please, God, we'll continue same time, same place next week. Thanks for joining and have a great evening.